A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be uh, delving into a topic that we've discussed uh, previously at Bearing Arms, and I think here on the program, too, the inherent contradiction between two priorities for Democrats around the country, right? On the one hand, you got gun control. Let's try to criminalize the right to keep and bear arms. On the other hand, you have criminal justice reform, right? Let's do whatever we can to keep people out of prison. Well, at the same time, again, creating new nonviolent possessory offenses carved out of our Second Amendment rights. Yeah, uh, it is. I, I think uh, these are two positions that are at odds with each other. Um, and a perfect example of this is what's playing out in Colorado this session, uh, where Democrats have unveiled a, a very extensive. Uh, anti-gun agenda, right? They have uh, new sensitive places where guns would be banned uh, in a state. By the way, we're about 15% of the adult population estimated to have a concealed carry license. Uh, these are places that have not been off limits to legal gun owners before, but uh, Colorado Democrats introducing California style uh, and New York style gun-free zones. You also have bills that would ban so-called assault weapons, right? And uh, other restrictions. Again, nonviolent possessory offenses, you own that gun or you sell that gun, uh, well, that's going to be a crime. Meanwhile, bills that would actually increase the penalties for committing serious offenses have fallen by the wayside. The uh, Democrats have found them too objectionable. And the Colorado Sun, Jesse Paul, highlights one Example of what he calls the attempt to reduce gun violence colliding with the uh, Democrats' criminal justice reform ethos and how this is playing out in Denver this year. So there was a bill, House Bill 1162, that would have increased the penalties for stealing guns. This is a bill that was supported by gun control groups like Ceasefire Colorado, as well as groups like the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Under Colorado law right now, if somebody steals a gun that's worth less than $300, it's considered a petty offense, punishable by, at most, 10 days in jail. Uh, between $301 and $1,999, it is a misdemeanor offense. It does not become a felony to steal a firearm unless the value of that firearm is more than $2,000. So, House Bill 1162 um, would have simply said stealing a firearm of any value, no matter what it's worth, is a class six felony punishable by up to 18 months in prison. So it doesn't matter if you sell or, you know, you steal a $400 pistol or a $3,500 custom rifle, you stole a gun and that's a felony. Again, this was supported by gun control groups. This was supported by Second Amendment groups. Uh, but it was not supported by enough Democrats to get the bill out of committee. State Senator uh, Tom Sullivan, uh, who did not cast a vote on this bill because he's a, a senator, and this is a House bill, he was among those objecting to this, though. He said, quote, we're not going to incarcerate ourselves out of this. Huh. Yeah, Paul describes him as one of the legislature's fiercest gun safety voices. His son Alex murdered in the Aurora Theater shooting, and Sullivan has definitely been a vociferous advocate for gun control legislation during his time 
in the state house in Denver. But now you got Sullivan say, hey, hey, listen, we're not we're not going to uh, incarcerate ourselves out of this problem, which I guess is slightly different than we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. We've heard that from Democrats, too, even though, again, they then turn around and pass laws that require law enforcement to make arrests in order for these laws to be enforced. Right. One of the uh, Democrats who did vote against the bill, uh, Representative Javier Mabry, Democrat from Denver, said, for me, just philosophically. It's hard for me to vote for any law that increases a criminal penalty without evidence that there's a direct link to a deterrent effect, without evidence that we will see a decrease in people who are stealing firearms. Maybe added that, of course, I want fewer instances of people stealing firearms, but said that stealing a gun would still be illegal whether or not the bill becomes law. Representative Leslie Howard, or Herod, rather, a Democrat on the committee, said there's nothing in this bill, nor in the fiscal note. It says this increased penalty will have any impact on the number of guns on the streets or that it will reduce the amount of people that possess stolen firearms. Now, you could make the very same argument for all of the gun control laws that Colorado lawmakers have either put in place over the past 10 years or want to put in place this year, right? Take, for instance, the uh, state's ban on so-called large-capacity magazines. Is there any evidence whatsoever that that ban has reduced the number of quote-unquote large-capacity magazines that are used in crimes in Colorado, or reduced violent crime overall. Absolutely not. Violent crime has steadily increased in Colorado over the past 10 years, even as Democrats have put in place measures like universal background checks, the magazine ban I just mentioned, uh, red flag laws, getting rid of firearms preemption and allowing localities to set their own more restrictive gun control measures. None of those have reduced violent crime in Colorado. So why aren't these Democrats calling for the repeal of those statutes in addition to putting the kibosh on a bill that would have increased the penalties for stealing a firearm? Do they have any philosophical disagreements with the gun control laws that are already on the books? Doesn't seem like it. Uh, As Paul writes... Other bills passed by the legislature's Democratic majority in recent years or being pursued now at the Capitol increase penalties or enact new ones for firearm-related crimes. For instance, violating a new law requiring Coloradans who own guns to store their weapons in a gun safe or with a trigger or cable lock when the owner knows or should reasonably know that a juvenile or a resident who is ineligible to possess a firearm can gain access to the firearm is a Class two misdemeanor offense. But as Paul says, increasingly, the gun control measures being introduced by Democrats in the Colorado legislature would carry no jail or prison time and instead would levy only fines. For example, Colorado's new law imposing a three-day waiting period on gun purchases carries a fine of no more than $5,000, and it's only that high for repeat offenders. House Bill 1270 introduced this year in the legislature is another example, Paul writes. The measure would impose a $500 to $1,000 fine on gun owners who don't obtain firearm liability insurance. Another measure introduced at the Capitol this year, he says, House Bill 1292, would ban the purchase, sale, and transfer in Colorado of a broad swath of semi-automatic firearms defined in the legislation as quote-unquote assault weapons. That would carry a $250,000 fine for a first offense and a $500,000 fine for subsequent offenses. Which begs the question, if Senator Sullivan does not believe that we're going to incarcerate our way out of this problem, does he really believe that we're going to fine our way out of this problem? That criminals who would not be dissuaded by the prospect of prison time 
will in fact be dissuaded by the possibility of a fine levied against them. I, that doesn't make much sense to me. But again, this is, I guess, the Democrats' attempt to have it both ways, right? Well, we want gun control, but we don't want to put people behind bars. So instead, we'll try to find them into compliance. Now, is there any evidence whatsoever that that is a more effective way to reduce violent crime than, you know, actual consequences for, I don't know, stealing a gun, something like that? Absolutely not. Does it make it any less infringy to say, well, you can't own this gun, but we're not going to put you in jail if you do. Uh, we're just going to rob you of your life savings. Absolutely not. It doesn't make, you know, th th that's what's so weird about this is that passing these bills or even drafting these bills uh, in a way that there are no uh, prison sentences attached to violations of this law. Instead, there are just financial consequences. Doesn't make these bills any more constitutionally sound than if they put someone in prison for 10 years uh, for possessing a so-called assault weapon. The problem is you are still limiting people's ability to exercise their right to keep and bear arms. It really doesn't matter what the consequences are, whether it's a prison time uh, or a fine that's levied against them. The infringement occurs by telling lawful gun owners, hey, you can't do this anymore, right? These commonly owned firearms, you can't own them. These commonly owned magazines, you can't possess them. Uh, that firearm that you want to sell to your neighbor, well, we're going to make you drive 50 miles to the nearest gun store to do a background check, and then we're going to make you drive 50 miles home, and then we're going to make you drive 50 miles back three days later when the waiting period is over so the transfer can actually take place. That's the infringement, right? It's not the punishment that is the infringement. It is the uh, legislature saying you cannot do this thing that is protected by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So, again, I don't know what this does for Democrats other than to try to make them feel better about what it is that they're doing. But if they honestly believe, like Senator Sullivan does, that we're not going to incarcerate our way out of this problem. We're not going to find our way either, right? If you are so staunchly opposed to people exercising their right to keep their arms, try to repeal the Second Amendment. Now, listen, I don't think you're going to get anywhere, but that would at least be a more honest approach than what Democrats are doing right now. Trying to have it both ways, right? Trying to appease the gun control lobby by saying, look, we're passing these bills, trying to appease their uh, criminal justice reformers by saying, oh, well, we're not going to put anybody in prison for violating these laws. And again, if, if I'm just playing devil's advocate here for a second, but if the thinking is, all right, listen, these laws disproportionately impact minorities. Uh, we don't want to be putting, you know, uh, young black and brown men in prison for these nonviolent offenses. That only makes things worse. <laughs> how, how does finding them make it any better? So let's say you catch somebody 22 years old in possession of a uh, so-called assault weapon if this ban passes in Colorado. All right, so they're not going to go to prison. They're going to get fined $250,000, which chances are they're not going to be able to pay, right? So what happens then? Are there any consequences whatsoever? Do you waive those fees for those who cannot afford it? 
Do you saddle that individual who is simply possessing a firearm with a lifetime of debt that they have to pay off to the state because they dared to possess a gun that they were not allowed to? Again, what kind of consequences will that have for the quote-unquote offender in those circumstances? If you don't, if the Democrats don't want to punish offenders, then they should be taking these laws off the books instead of writing new ones. If, on the other hand, they do believe that there should be consequences for crime, even if the uh, consequences fall disproportionately on minorities because minorities are disproportionately committing these crimes, well, then you've got to actually have laws that have some teeth to them, right? Again, I would say those gun control laws with teeth are still going to be a violation of our Second Amendment rights, but that would at least be a more consistent approach than what the Democrats are trying to do now. Pass a whole bunch of new gun laws that aren't going to put anybody in prison, but we'll send people to bankruptcy court, right? All in the name of criminal justice reform. How about this? Leave our rights alone. Go after the violent offenders. Yes, ensure that there are consequences for stealing a gun, too, since, you know, you tell us that's a serious crime. Treat it seriously. And then maybe we can talk. The problem is that Democrats aren't serious, by and large, about fighting violent crime. They are, however, unfortunately, very serious, by and large, about stripping us of our fundamental right to keep and bear arms. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report, which comes to us from Harris County, Texas. The headline, Breaking Bond, Habitual Offender Remains Free on Bonds After New Charge and Violating Bond Conditions. Yeah, this is from uh, the Fox affiliate in Harris County, Texas. Rashad Matthews is the uh, individual in question here, well-known to law enforcement in the Houston area. Uh, in fact, according to Randy Wallace of uh, Fox in Houston, judging by his criminal history, the public is not safe with Rashad Wallace walking among us. But the 232nd criminal district court judge who has been overseeing Rashad Matthews criminal cases will not revoke his many bonds no matter what new charges are filed against him. Uh, as Wallace reports, based on his multi-county rap sheet, Matthews is a true habitual offender. Uh, Andy Kayon with Crime Stoppers says, starting back in 2009 in Fort Bend County, uh, it starts with robbery. He gets probation, has his probation revoked. He's sent to prison. He comes back. He gets another prison sentence in both Fort Bend and in Harris County for robbery. In 2020, he was charged with burglary as well as violating a protective order. The judge in this case, Josh Hill, set his bond at $50,000 and Matthews walked free. In 2021, Matthews is arrested again, this time for felon in possession of a firearm. Um, David Mitchum, who's the first assistant district attorney in Harris County, says it's very disturbing. When you have a defendant who's been to the penitentiary, not only once, but twice for robbery, and is now out on five felony bonds, one of which is a felon in possession of a weapon. Both in 2021 and again in 2023, Matthews picked up new criminal charges of assaulting a family member. The DA's office, over the past couple of years, has filed 16 different motions to revoke Matthews' bonds, but every time, the judge denies it, allowing him to remain free. Uh, even after last year, he was charged not only with, uh, again, assaulting a family member, but a DUI. 
Judge says, that's okay. You're free to go. The assistant DA says he has broad discretion in these matters. And he's been setting a new bond every time the defendant picks up a new charge. Uh, even though, and by the way, this is incredible. Part of Matthew's bond conditions require him to remain in the state, right? He's apparently on a GPS monitor. And according to uh, Andy Kay, I'm with Crime Stoppers. Even though he's on house arrest and he's supposedly being monitored via GPS 24 hours a day, he gets on a flight and takes off for Miami, <laughs> which, again, completely violates the terms of his bond. Um, Douglas Griffith, president of the Houston Police Officers Union, says nothing was done about that other than making the bond higher. He said, at this point, the man needs to be locked up and away from the public. The uh, district attorney's office says, from our point of view, this is madness. And it is. Listen, I understand that when you're arrested, you are innocent until proven guilty, right? And I don't believe that every criminal charge should result in somebody staying behind bars until their case goes to trial. But when you're determining whether or not somebody should be allowed to post bond or somebody should stay behind bars until their case is heard in court, there are a couple of things that you're supposed to factor in, right? Previous criminal history, whether or not someone's a flight risk, whether or not someone's a danger to the community. And when you have somebody who's, again, being arrested for violent crimes, violent behavior, uh, possessing a firearm after a uh, conviction for a violent crime, and again, even taking off and leaving the state while you're not allowed to do so, all of these, I think, are indications that this individual is not taking the conditions of their bond seriously and that the public is, in fact, at risk. Uh, while this individual is out on the streets. Again, he's had violent arrests that have occurred, or arrests on violent charges anyway that have occurred while he's been out on bond. So, yeah, I, I don't think this is a, a blanket situation where, you know, you get put in cuffs, you're going to stay behind bars until you uh, face a jury. But this is one of those cases where you do have to wonder what has to happen for a judge to say, all right, Rashad Matthews, you are a danger to the community. You are a flight risk because you've taken off. And so we are going to keep you in custody until these cases go to trial, at least one of these cases. The other question, of course, though, is how long does it take for these cases to go to trial? I mean, it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, we, you know, he, he, he gets arrested, he bonds out. While he's awaiting trial, he gets arrested again. Okay, but at some point, shouldn't one of these cases have gone to trial? resulting in either a guilty plea or a conviction or, I suppose, an acquittal. Sounds like um, one of the problems here in Harris County, and quite frankly around the country, is the lackadaisical pace of prosecutions. Uh, and that might be because you don't have enough prosecutors. Might be because you don't have enough public defenders. But for whatever reason, the wheels of justice are grinding awfully slowly in Harris County, and Rashad Matthews appears to be the beneficiary of these delays, as well as a uh, judge with a soft spot. All right, today's Armed Citizen story from Huma, Louisiana, where a homeowner shot a home invasion suspect on Tuesday morning. This is about uh, 5.15 Tuesday morning. Homeowner in question says he heard a noise from downstairs, so he grabbed his gun, went to go investigate. As he's walking down to the first floor, he is confronted by an intruder, and the homeowner fires a shot. 
The intruder takes off running. Homeowner calls police. Uh, they come out and investigate, and they haven't said how they uh, determined that uh, 36-year-old Dax Bear was a suspect, but they did. Uh, and they also realized, okay, he's, he's around here, close by. So they went to a home not far away in an attempt to arrest Bear. When they got there, um, they found a woman identified as 26-year-old Ty Corbett uh, at the house. She actually walked out the front door. She had a handgun of her own. She was taken into custody, uh, reportedly told officers that Bear had been shot in the head and was lying on a couch. Uh, instead, a canine unit found Bear hiding under a mattress, arrested him without incident, took him into custody. It turns out it was a superficial graze wound, basically, to his forehead. Uh, Bear, incredibly lucky to be alive, facing charges now of a simple burglary. As uh, alleged accomplice, Corbett, actually facing more serious charges because of the gun that she was found. It turns out she's... A convicted felon, not allowed to possess a firearm either. So in addition to the simple burglary charge that uh, Bear is facing, Corbett's also facing charge of obstruction of justice as well as felon in possession. The uh, homeowner, not facing any charges at all under Louisiana law, he had every right to defend himself from somebody who is forcibly entering his home, uh, unharmed as well, thankfully, which is more can be said for at least one of the uh, home invasion suspects there in Huma, Louisiana. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. A police officer in Winthrop, Massachusetts, who helped save a choking baby on Tuesday, just a short time after he had uh, completed his CPR refresher training course. And when I say short time, like minutes after he finished that CPR training course, he was able to put those uh, skills to use. 911 call came into Winford Police and Fire around 11 a.m. Tuesday morning about a one-month-old infant that was choking at a home. Police and fire both responded. Officer Robert Jaworski was the first to get to the front door. Police say uh, Jaworski, who had just left his CPR refresher training approximately 10 minutes prior, used his training and experience to dislodge a substance from the child's throat, allowing the child to breathe. Child taken to a local hospital just for uh, precautionary measures, but checked out okay. According to the Winthrop Police, Jaworski's been on the uh, force for 30 years. Police Chief Terrence Delahaney said uh, the professionalism, courage, and skill shown by Officer Jaworski in a critical moment, truly commendable. Said Winthrop is incredibly fortunate to have dedicated and compassionate first responders like Officer Jaworski patrolling our streets and ensuring the safety of our residents. And again, in the right place, at the right time willing and able to do the right thing, in part, at least because of that CPR refresher course taken just minutes before. A, a one-month-old is alive and well. And parents awfully relieved. And uh, Officer Jaworski, we thank you for your very, very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I almost hesitate to preview tomorrow's show. Just because the last two times I've done this, we've had issues. But third time's the charm, right? So tomorrow, we're going to be talking with Rob Dorff from the Minnesota Gun Owners Caucus. Fingers crossed. It is a very fluid situation right now in uh, the Minnesota legislature. So uh, the folks at the Gun Caucus have a lot on their plates. But hopefully, Rob will be able to carve out a couple minutes. Uh, we are planning on speaking tomorrow morning. We're going to be talking about the gun bills that have been dropping. Uh, obviously, the shooting in Burnsville, Minnesota has... Uh, provided added impetus for the anti-gunners to push for a gun ban in the state of Minnesota this year. And we'll be talking with Rob about that measure as well as some others. 
Uh, so be sure to check out Barry and Arms Cam and Company tomorrow. Also, be sure to check out BarryandArms.com throughout the day, where we are keeping you up to date on all of the latest Second Amendment news and information from across the nation, including a surprisingly good decision from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday. I, 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 it's amazing to see, but apparently the Ninth Circuit can get it right once in a while. But yeah, we've got uh, legislatures, you know, in session all across the country. We've got lawsuits being filed. We've got court decisions coming down. Of course, we've got armed citizen stories to talk about. We've got, sadly, unarmed citizen stories to talk about. Victims of violent crime and gun-free zones and places like that. And again, you can find all those stories at BarryAndArms.com. If you like what you see, I'd encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member as well. In fact, if you use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, you can get 50% off of your VIP or VIP Gold membership. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else because your support really matters, and it truly does make a difference. So thank you again. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.